Hello, and welcome to Beyond the Breakers, a podcast about shipwrecks, loss, and lessons learned from maritime disasters. My name is Taylor, and I'll be your host. First off, just want to say thank you for your support. We're both so happy to create something that you're enjoying. Um, as we always say, you know, we, we look forward to interacting with you guys. We like receiving comments and feedback. And uh, also, we enjoy those iTunes ratings. So please, if you haven't, please rate the show. A couple other social media things on Twitter. We are at Beyond underscore Breakers. Instagram, Beyond the Breakers Podcast. Email is beyondthebreakerspod at gmail.com. And we do have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beyondthebreakers. Show will always be ad free. Money from the Patreon just goes towards making the show better, you know, research materials, that kind of thing. You know, we don't want to run ads. We're not going to run ads. So if you, you know, enjoy the show, you want to toss us a couple dollars, it's uh, always appreciated and never expected. With all of that out of the way, I'll go ahead and bring in Tanner. Tanner, how you doing? Doing pretty well, as usual lately. Very excited to do this episode. Go to somewhere that both of us are relatively familiar with. Uh, yeah, this, this episode is taking place like within five miles of a episode we've already done. So that'll be fun. Yeah, uh, we like to re- revisit old uh, haunts. Before we get into that, though, how are uh, how are you doing? What have you been up to? Doing pretty well. Uh, this past past few days, I finally put some paint on models again for mm. like the first time in a few months. So that's good. Did a lot of dusting. Did a lot of organization in my my room here. We've been nice. in this apartment since May, and I still never really have totally moved into my my room. Like I still have a bunch of stuff just needing to go up on the walls, so that is where it's supposed to be now. So it feels much more homey in here. Nice. Which again, like painting, I feel like for me, it seems like a very big investment of time and space. And so if you're in a room that's already a mess, I, I never feel motivated to do more hobby stuff. Right, and so now that I've now that I've sort of chipped away at that, I, I feel a bit more creative and productive with with painting. So yeah, in the next few days on Instagram, I should be sharing some stuff that I'm finishing up here, and cool. uh, that's fun. Other thing I wanted to point out while we're just bantering here, I believe it was today, just a few hours ago, the Ever Given passed back through the Suez Canal successfully, from what I saw, which is. <laughs> A bit of a waste. I mean, Ever Given had a chance to do probably the funniest thing in human history. And, and they chose not to. I guess the global supply chain is more important or something. But, I mean, really a missed opportunity, I think, uh, all around there. Glad to see them uh, get right back on that horse and not be afraid. Yeah. I think this is the second time they have transited the canal since that. But I think this is the first time they're doing it the same direction that they got stuck. Well, like, do you just picture, like, the captain of the first mate just staring at that spot as they go past it? Like, no, no, not again. Like, the boat's pulling, pulling over to the right, trying to go back over there. The person at the helm, just see their, <laughs> their hands, like, drifting towards it, and the captain has to gently, gently just place a hand on say, no. No, not, no, again. not today. <laughs> not this time. Someday. Uh, yep, it's, uh, that is a funny one. It's, uh, glad they made it through okay this time. Yeah. What else have you been up to? Um, work mostly. I like I, I've said before. I work in the logistics industry, and this is a busy time of year for us, obviously. So a lot a of stuff lot of going places. Yep, I'm looking forward to it. Though I have the week of Christmas off, so that'll be nice. Nice, very nice cool. Break. Um, More time to spend I, researching shipwrecks. I did want to point out. Uh, I think just to add into our intro stuff, I don't know if we mentioned it 
in, in your intro, but we do have a Facebook for the show also. It's not super active, but we are slowly sort of going back and, and adding visual content from our older episodes, you know, some pictures with some more detailed captions. Uh, so if you are on Facebook, you can give us a follow and we'll be sort of adding things to that every now and then. Yeah, I would say it's probably a little bit more of a passive social media for us than or we're a lot more active on Instagram and Twitter. Yeah, for sure. That's that's where we do the bulk of our communication. So if you if you want us to actually see something that you you are telling us or or asking or commenting about the show, do that for sure on Twitter or Instagram or email. That works too. That's always fun. Yeah, for sure. Well, with all of that stuff out of the way, are you ready to talk about a shipwreck? I'm ready, I think. Since this is a shipwreck podcast. Oh, before we do that, though, before we one more thing I'll add is that we are recording possibly in a slightly different format than we normally do. This is the first time that Taylor and I are trying to use Zencaster, which is cool because we can actually see each other this time. We right. recorded our first 41 episodes completely audio only. This is a new experience and the audio maybe sounds a little bit different. I don't know. We'll, we'll find out after the recording. But uh, yeah, let us let us know if you if you notice anything awesome or terrible about our new recording format. Yeah, for sure. It's exciting though. It's nice to be able to see each other. It feels a little bit more like having an actual chat. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about a shipwreck. Are you familiar with the Outer Banks region of North Carolina? Uh, yes, I've I've heard of the Outer Banks. Are you familiar with Moorhead City, North Carolina? Yes. I have spent time in Moorhead City as a child. <laughs> Are you familiar with the shipwreck of the HMT Bedfordshire? No. What is HMT? So HMT stands for His Majesty's Trawler. <laughs> I like that the British ships are like, it always includes it in the abbreviation of like what specific type of ship it is. I don't know it if is, we do that it too. Is interesting. But, but I think that's funny. Like we saw that, I saw that with, uh, the Britannic, the HM, was it technically HMHS? Because it was a hospital ship. And like with the Australian Navy, how it's HMAS, you know, Her, Her Majesty's Australian ship. Basically, the more letters you add, the funnier it gets, I feel like. like you look at like the Norwegian Navy and there's all sorts of letters in those prefixes. Is there like a Her Majesty's dinghy? <laughs> so this is the HMT Bedfordshire. So she actually, as the name would imply begins life as a fishing vessel. Uh, she's built in 1935 by the Smith's Dock Company, which would later be acquired by one of the friends of the show, Swan Hunter. Oh, I Basically, remember Basically, okay. like, if you had a British ship built, if, I think, like, Swan Hunter did a lot of it in, like, the, the mid to late 1900s. <laughs> Swan Hunter also sounds like it would be an arcade game with those, with, the, like, a, like, a hunting the, shooter the game. guns, yeah. Yeah. So her original owner was the Bedfordshire Fishing Company of Grimsby. A lot of fun British names again. I just can't, I can't quit it. Grimsby is a good one. She was 162 feet long and 26 feet wide. And her original function, um, she was a fishing vessel in the Arctic. So, you know, she's built for pretty tough conditions and it does pretty dangerous work to begin with. And then in 1939 the British Admir Admiralty takes the vessel over. Can you think of a reason why in 1939 the British Navy would be beefing up their supply ships? Little little dust-up uh, going on in Europe. So when the British Navy gets a hold of her, they equip her with a Lewis gun, a four-inch cool. deck gun, and she can hold between 80 and 100 depth charges. 
for a fishing trawler, she's pretty well armed. You know, she's small but well equipped and well suited for the task at hand, which would be anti-submarine operations. So basically, the idea is you want small, fast, maneuverable ships to mm. you know do anti-submarine ops. The fish thought that she was scary before. <laughs> yeah. So she would be manned by a crew from Britain and Canada, which at the time is still a British dependent. Yeah, yeah or nay? Is, is Canada still part of Britain at that point? I mean, yes, I believe more firmly than they are now. Uh, <laughs> I think that's that's my understanding of Canadian history. <laughs> but so she operated off the southwest coast of England and in the Bristol Channel. She would serve in that capacity till 1942. So early on in the war, you know, she's just patrolling, you know, more locally, trying to keep the U-boat threat at bay. Mm-hmm. And then on December 11th, 1941, Germany declares war on the United States, and that presents a problem. All of a sudden, U-boats, uh, you know, they aren't just picking off ships in the mid-Atlantic and, you know, on the European side, they're right off the coast of the United States. And when I say right off the coast, they are literally right off the coast. Yeah, I mean, this is a callback to our episode about the Atlas tanker, where it was a bit enlightening for me to really, you know, I had been aware of that, but then to see just the level of activity from U-boats just right off the coast of the United States was, was pretty... Uh, interesting to see that that had been happening. Yeah, it's kind of a a weird thing for me because like growing up fishing and being into shipwrecks, it was just part of what I learned about as a kid. So it was never weird to me. But now as an adult, kind of looking back at it, it's strange to think that there are German naval personnel literally a mile offshore of the United States. Well, and it's very strange because in the United States, we're very accustomed, and I probably said the same thing on, on our other episode, we're very accustomed to pretty much any conflict we're involved in, you know, being over there. Right. And the idea that that's, that's not at all the case that, you know, there's ships being torpedoed and people being killed in combat in world war two, a mile off the shore of North Carolina is not amazing. That's probably the wrong word for it, but it's very interesting to, to see that. Right. Yes. It, it did touch us much closer than I think many people are aware of. Yeah. This is the closest thing to like the whole battle of Britain blitz type thing that america would have to undergo in world war ii and it was like you didn't know what was going to happen there's blackouts going on along the coast like there's all these rumors of german agents being you know dropped off on shore like Mm -hmm. you know we know now looking back at it that it all works out but at the time it very much wasn't that it was a very scary thing half the population of the midwest is already german anyway right (laughs) so let's talk a little bit about that situation off the east coast the U.S. Navy is not prepared to defend against submarine warfare at this point. You know, in World War I, they had used the convoy systems and things like that. And they just weren't ready to mobilize that yet. It had happened so quickly that mm-hmm. there really wasn't a lot of sentiment in the U.S. to go to, you know, enter into World War II until Japan gave us the push that we needed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they just weren't ready to mobilize that. I always thought that was funny. You know, looking at history, it's like, oh, well, you know, this worked in World War I. Why aren't we doing this? now and it's not because they didn't think of it it's because they couldn't right you you had to react quicker than that so the early part of 1942 is not great so there's about 35 allied ships sunk off of the east coast during january of 1942 
And this is part of the German operation called Operation Drumbeat, which I think we touched on a little bit when we talked about mm-hmm. the Atlas. And all that is is just basically their plan to go attack shipping on the East Coast. They want to mm-hmm. sink ships before they even have a chance to get to England or to Britain. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the, the happy time, I believe. The happy we, time, it was yes. called the, the second happy time. Or Operation Paukenschlag, Operation Drumbeat. I would not have even attempted that. So in response to this, the Royal Navy sent 24 converted trawlers to assist the U.S. Navy in anti-submarine patrols. So think about that for a second, though. Things aren't great in Britain at that time. Mm-hmm. And they're sending ships to the U.S. to go help. That's how important these supplies are. You know, you're not going to pull resources from more of like a frontline role unless you absolutely need the things that are coming from the United States. I thought that was very yeah, it's it's especially interesting in retrospect, looking back at, you know, especially in like the post World War Two world, looking back at this situation where a detachment of 24, you know, not even not even real warships, but these armed trawlers are, are such a help to the U.S. Right. Uh, at this point. Yeah, because they have no counter to the submarine mm-hmm. threat, really. So among these vessels is the Bedfordshire. She's under the command of Lieutenant Russell Bransby Davis. Yes. <laughs> That's a good, fun British name. It's not a weird one. It's just a fun one. Bransby. <laughs> Bedfordshire was assigned to the 5th Naval District, which is headquartered at Norfolk Navy Yard in Norfolk, Virginia. And the Bedfordshire herself would operate out of Moorhead City. Uh, she'd patrol the North Carolina's Outer Banks region. So a little bit about Moorhead and kind of its role in World War II. Unless you're, like, from North Carolina or really, like, a student of shipping logistics, I guess, in America, mm-hmm. you probably don't know Moorhead. It's not that big of a city compared to, like, a Wilmington or Norfolk or somewhere. Mm-hmm. But it's actually the other deep water port in North Carolina. There's two. There's Wilmington, which is big, and then there's Moorhead. So there's there's only two deep water ports, and in, in a war, every deep water port is very valuable. So this is, you know, this is one of the only places where you're going to be able to ship stuff and stage stuff. So, you know, it's a key strategic point for the allies. It also happens to stick out further into the the shipping lanes because of the way the Outer Banks geography works. You're just closer to getting into the shipping lanes to get into convoys and stuff. So this is this is an important strategic point. Um, In addition to the port facilities, this area holds a large number of military bases and training installations. Uh, Even to this day, it still does. But at the time, you know, they're slapping up Fort This, Fort That everywhere, you know, to to train Mm -hmm. new soldiers. Um, These installations would include a Coast Guard outpost at Fort Macon, a Navy section base, Camp Lejeune for the Marine Corps, and Camp Glenn. There's also various bombing targets set up out in like bays and inlets and stuff like it. There's a lot going on in this area for the the military, the war effort. Right. It's it's cool to see Fort Macon get some action yes. here. Yep. Many a trip to Fort Macon as a kid, and that's actually like an old pre-Civil War fort. It's been reestablished multiple times. It was, you know, it was basically outdated even by the Civil War as far as a a fixed military installation, but mm-hmm. training grounds um and they did put like coastal artillery there you know, just to defend against the U-boat threat or something like, you know, going on like that. So uh, it is cool, though, somewhere that we've been a lot. And if you're in the Moorhead area, I highly recommend it. Uh, The city was also protected by the 1st Battalion, 224th Coastal Artillery. And that's the group that's stationed at Fort Macon. Their job is just to guard the approaches to the harbor. 
it was probably more of a morale boost to have them there than anything. Like if they actually have to do something, things are bad. <laughs> That's you, you've gotten to the point where things are, are not great. This is reminding me of the video game Panzer General, the PC game, yes. the scenario where the Germans are invading the East coast of the United States. Mm-hmm. I, I believe their target is Oak Ridge. Mm-hmm. The overall strategic target but yes this this is what this is reminding me of you know if, yeah. if fort megan <laughs> is seeing action here but yeah moorhead is a it's a great little place um it is somewhere like if you're you know in the outer banks region i would definitely check it out beaufort is right across the uh the harbor it's a cool old town you know blackbeard all that kind of stuff a lot of a lot of that takes place there so if you're into history and you're into shipwrecks and ships which you wouldn't be listening to this podcast if you weren't <laughs> i highly recommend checking it out a lot of cool restaurants and everything. So it's it's definitely a fun place. Another thing that would probably appeal to our listeners is if you're in Beaufort, there's a very, very cool maritime museum in Beaufort. Yes. Yep. Uh, that's definitely worth checking out. That is. I would honestly credit that partially with probably keeping my interest in this stuff for so long. So mm-hmm. definitely, uh, you know, if you're in that area, it's worth the drive. It's worth checking all that out. Mm-hmm. Let's get back to talking about the Bedfordshire. So... Let's talk about our service on the East Coast. On April 17th, 1942, the Bedfordshire assisted the USS Stringham in the search for survivors of a sunken oil tanker. So this is also one of the things she's doing. Not only is she patrolling, she's also assisting in recovery efforts, rescue efforts, that kind of thing. So, you know, she's basically just whatever needs to be done. That's what she's going to do. She's kind of a general purpose vessel. Mm -hmm. On April 18th, 1942, the Bedfordshire searched for survivors of the U-85. Now, this is actually the first U-boat that sunk on the East Coast by the U.S. Navy. So, you know, even if it's not a huge tactical victory to sink one sub, that's a big morale booster because you finally yeah. got one. Like, you've got something to hang your hat on and, and give you a little encouragement. Mm-hmm. So she actually stands guard of the wreck site while there's attempts made to salvage the U-boat. Obviously, there's a lot of intelligence and information that, you know, people would want to gather from a sunken U-boat. The U-boat had been sunk by the USS Roper near Bodie Island Lighthouse. Of note, many of the bodies that were recovered were actually dressed in civilian clothes, carrying U.S. currency and IDs. That's not fair. Come on, guys. (laughs) So, like, all those threats about German agents and saboteurs and things, like, (laughs) I mean, it it looks kind of founded. And I know that there are cases where that actually did happen in New York and places like that. But it appears that this may have been another attempt to get more agents on shore. Hmm. The bodies would be fingerprinted, photographed, and buried at night at Hampton National Cemetery. And then uh, a little late for the war effort, but in 2001, the Enigma machine was actually recovered from that. <laughs> Just imagine, hey guys, check this out, we, 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 can, we can crack the Enigma code finally. <laughs> but it is kind of funny to think that it was sitting right there all that time. Like, you, yeah. you know, it, it was there, so... Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. So the Bedfordshire is involved in that. Cool. So the rest of April is spent patrolling in the vicinity of Currituck, Hatteras, and Lookout Shoals. Uh, This time would be relatively uneventful, but I mean, relative is doing a lot of lifting there. I imagine it's still Mm -hmm. pretty intense and, you know, a lot going on for a a normal person. Yeah. Um, This brings us to another interesting story about the Bedfordshire and her time in Moorhead City. Acock Brown was a civilian investigator for the Office of Naval Intelligence, and he's a local to the area because, of course, he is with a name like Acock Brown. Acock Brown. Again, (laughs) it's not just the British who have awesome names. 
He was tasked with IDing any bodies that washed up on shore and to analyze them for intelligence. What a job. Like, how do you even get that job? They just come to you one day and be like, you like dead bodies? <laughs> Currently, he is tasked with identifying four bodies that had washed up on Nag's head. The bodies had come from the British tanker San Delfino, which had been torpedoed by U-203 on April 9th, 1942. U.S. naval authorities wanted the funeral to include the, the use of British flags, and that's why Acock Brown was on board. So, you know, they're trying to do the right thing, you know, have a, a respectful ceremony for these British sailors. So he boards a British vessel and asks for some flags. Mm-hmm. Sub-Lieutenant Thomas Cunningham is actually the one who supplies the flags. Um, he takes Mr. Brown down to the wardroom where they share a drink of rum and they, you know, hands over the flags and they just kind of discuss the general state of what's going on. I thought that was kind of interesting, though. It's kind of like a movie. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you go to get the flags, but you got to have a, a drink first. It's very, like, 1940s. Mm-hmm. On May 10th. Oh, actually, I just want to say those flags will be important later. Keep those in mind. Chekhov's flags. Chekhov's flags. On May 10th, 1942, the sailors of the Bedfordshire are out of the town in Moorhead City. So like I said, it's a real city. There's a lot of bars, restaurants, that kind of thing. And particularly back then, it's a port town. Like you're, they're used to having sailors come in and out. You know what I mean? So it has mm-hmm. the, the typical attractions that sailors might enjoy. In a story as old as sailing, one of the sailors found themselves locked <laughs> up due to an evening of booze-fueled fun. Uh, they were unable to make it back to the ship before she departed for her next mission. That soldier's name, Sam Nutt. And actually, there's a quote from him that I was able to find. And I'll, I'll go ahead and read that to you. I never did know what the Americans were going to charge me with. I spent a night in the cells, and they let me out. And the American soldiers took me down to the dock to join the Bedfordshire. But she had gone to sea. We had to go aboard another boat to go look for the Bedfordshire. They were going to take us out to join the ship at sea. When we got there, there was no trace of her at all. So he gets locked up and doesn't remember why he got locked up, which (laughs) we've all been there at some point, right? Very serendipitous bender there, I'm assuming. Uh, Yeah, spoiler alert. (laughs) So some sources say four sailors were detained, but the story I've heard has always been one. I don't know. I found sources that stated both. But it got me to think, like, imagine being a young British sailor stationed in the American South in the early days of World War II. I'm sure it's easy to find fun and trouble if you're, you know, that person. Oh, for sure. You're just exotic enough to be exotic, but also very familiar. You're in Mm -hmm. good shape. You're young. You've already been fighting this war against the Germans compared to a lot of American men who have not seen combat. Like, I can imagine it wouldn't be hard to get the attention of some ladies in the bar and, and mm-hmm. probably find some trouble. Oh, for sure. <laughs> it's just, that's just what happens. All right. We'll move on to, uh, I guess what, this is what we're all here for, right? The section that's always titled the sinking on May 11th, 1942 Bedfordshire escorted a convoy to Hatteras. After this task was complete, she joined another British trawler, the St. Loman patrolling for U-boats in Eastern shipping lanes. At the same time, the U-558 is operating in the same area. The U-558 was basically just tasked with patrolling anywhere from Maine to Georgia and looking for targets of opportunity. So they're given pretty free reign, like, go find the shipping. We don't care where you find it, just go find it and sink it. Seems kind of, uh, kind of cool for wartime, kind of a be-your-own-boss situation. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess if if you want to be your own boss in World War II and you work for Germany, you boat captain. Yeah, be a U boat captain. I mean, you're probably not going to survive the war, but but you're your own man. <laughs> so up until now, she had not had any success. She had not found any shipping to sink. During the early morning hours of May 12th, the U 55 decides that she's ready to change that. She notices the Bedfordshire. Uh, it should be noted that the description of events that follows is solely reliant on the testimony of the U-boat's captain, mainly because he's the only person that witnesses it all right. and lives. The U-boat gets into firing position and fires two torpedoes at the Bedfordshire. And I want to say this, to me, lends credibility to everything the captain says, because these two torpedoes miss. If he's going to make up a story, he's not going to Oh, miss. right. Unless he knows that you'll think that. <laughs> and then he adds that in for credibility. So at 0540 hours, the U-boat would reposition itself and fire a third torpedo. What's interesting is the Bedfordshire never saw the first two torpedoes. They, no one on watch was able to you know, identify that. No one even knew that they were under attack. When they fire the third torpedo, this one would find its mark. It results in a massive explosion that lifts the vessel out of the water. Wow. So it's a, it's a one torpedo kill shot. The attack happens so quickly that Bedfordshire is not able to send a distress call. And additionally, it also sinks so quickly that there's very little debris found on the surface. This vessel essentially disappears. Wow. I guess maybe some of this is also the fact that she's a little bit smaller of a ship than I've normally read about being torpedoed. Mm-hmm. But it is amazing that it would it would take effect so quickly uh, with such right. a such a direct hit and then that it basically just disappears. Yeah, and I mean, just judging off the description of what happens, like you'd have to assume that the torpedo might detonate depth charges or strike somewhere and ignite fuel. Like it wasn't just the torpedo. Like so right. I think there's probably some secondary explosions that that are at play here. Yeah. So you know, this is pre GPS, pre emergency beacons, and all that. So obviously, no one knows that there's a problem at first. And with a vessel like Bedfordshire, they patrol for days at a time, so mm-hmm. you may not hear from them. First sign that something is wrong is when bodies begin to wash up on shore. Always a good sign that something is something has has gone amiss. I will say, as I was doing this one, I literally turned and said to the the other person in the room, "I didn't expect to type bodies washed up on shore so many times, but we'll we'll get there." <laughs> Let the bodies hit the shore. <laughs> yeah, that's it. So the bodies washed up on the shores of Ocracoke Island. Their British uniforms giving clue to what had happened. Ocracoke's another awesome little Outer Banks community that if you are lucky enough to be in the area, I would definitely recommend checking it out. It's uh, a little more isolated than some of the other places, but it's really awesome. Later, an empty life raft would wash up on shore. And, you know, at first you might be thinking, oh, well, maybe that was someone trying to escape. But what do we know about life rafts? They often will self-launch when the mm-hmm. vessel, you know, goes under. So that happens on our show probably just as often as they're actually intentionally launched. Right. Yeah. Yep. So that's not an indication that they tried to evacuate necessarily. Given the description from the U-boat captain, they didn't have time. Two days after the bodies of Thomas Cunningham and Stanley Craig were recovered, their deaths were recorded on the Eastern Seafront Command's Enemy Activity and Distress Report. So this is the first like official, you know, recording of something being wrong with Bedfordshire. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, at this point, the Bedfordshire had not been heard from since May 11th, and officials recategorized her as missing and possibly sunk. Four additional bodies are later recovered. However, 33 of her crew were never recovered. So not a lot of, you know, human remains or ship <clears throat> remains, really, you know, at, at the time. Uh, looking through the crew roster, it's really striking. The oldest person on board is only 37 years old. It's a lot of men in their early 20s and even 18, I think maybe one 17-year-old. Wow. So like th- this is definitely like wartime. You can tell like these are all people who are very young that are mm-hmm. that are on board this vessel. Definitely. When when I would have been like the second per- oldest person on board, like it was a little striking to be like, oh wow, that's that's kind of crazy. The fate of the Bedfordshire would be confirmed upon the sinking of the U558. Her captain is actually captured. He survives the sinking. And, uh, you know, they kind of review captain's logs. They go over things with him. And he is able to, you know, retell the story of sinking the Bedfordshire and and confirm that. So that's actually when it's fully confirmed. I feel like in terms of mortality rate for U-boats that were sunk, I feel like it's very interesting that he was able to survive. Yeah, I don't know what the circumstances were. Like, if it was one of those things where, you know... You get air cover. The sub, you know, sur- has to surface because of damage, mm-hmm. and basically give up, yeah, because they know that they've been got. So I don't, I don't, I gotcha. would have to research that. I didn't spend the time to research that, but yeah, he does survive, which is pretty rare for a U-boat captain. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit more about the aftermath of the incident. The bodies that washed up on Ocracoke would be identified, as I said previously, as Sub Lieutenant Thomas Cunningham and Ordinary Telegraphist Stanley Craig. They were buried in a small plot on Ocracoke Island that's actually donated by a local family. The flags that draped the coffins were actually the same flags that Cunningham had previously given Acock Brown. Mm. I thought that was a very interesting touch that not only is Cunningham's body found, which doesn't happen for very many of these people, but literally the same flags that he would, had you know shared a drink with uh, Acock Brown and all that, like, those are the same flags that would be on his coffin. Mm. It's definitely one of those like, he had no idea when he was handing those flags over that they would be for him. Right. I'm also kind of just struck by like the, the generosity of like the local people and everything of, you know, donating the land and, you know, wanting to get it right. Like with the flags and everything. Like I thought that was kind of a cool touch. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's, that's just a very impressive, like, like we talk about with these stories of like the, the people, the locals, the people in the area and seeing the, seeing a mix of, the the sort of the best and the worst of humanity mm-hmm. comes out in, in these types of stories. Yeah, for sure. Uh, shortly after the burial, two additional bodies were recovered and buried in the same plot. And that is actually still to this day referred to as the British Cemetery on Ogre Cove. Hmm. Uh, you can like look I had never heard of up that. on Google. Yeah, I, I do remember seeing that the last time I was there. I was a long time ago, but I do remember it. And I didn't really know the full story behind it. But you can pull it up on Google Maps. Um, you can look at it. It's not very big, but it is uh, It is there. On Hatteras Island, on May 21st, a fifth body is recovered. And although unidentifiable, it's presumed to be a crewman of the Bedfordshire. This sailor's body was buried next to a British sailor who was recovered from the previously mentioned San Delfino. This would result in a second British cemetery known as Cape Hatteras Coast Guard Burial Grounds. So that's kind of cool. They do this in another location, too, where they happen to have, you know, multiple casualties show up. 
I just clicked on the, uh, I'm on the British Cemetery of Ocracoke uh, website, looking at some of the pictures. And uh, it's interesting to note the detail that uh, these grounds are leased in perpetuity to the British Commonwealth. It reminds me of like the American servicemen who are buried in France, that mm -hmm. whole like thing of how that's like, you know, technically, technically U.S. soil. Uh, right. And like they fly the American flags and things like yeah. that. And the same yeah, thing and here, had, they actually do fly like the British, you know, flag, which is kind of cool. Yeah, I had no idea that there was anything like that in the United States. Yeah. In late May or early June, a sixth body would wash up at Swan Quarter, North Carolina. Uh, this would later be identified as seaman Alfred Dryden. Interesting to note that Swan Quarter is not actually on the ocean side of things. Hmm. Uh, rather, it's part of mainland North Carolina, more of the area of what is now referred to as the Inner Banks. This would have meant that his body would have had to have entered through the Pamlico or entered the Pamlico Sound, most likely through the Ocracoke mm -hmm. Inlet. So, I mean, that just goes to show you how fickle and weird ocean currents are. Like when you're looking for a boat that's adrift or something, why you can't find mm -hmm. it, that, you know, the ocean's going to do what it does. This is as good a time as any to throw in another podcast mention here for anyone interested in tides and oceanography and things like that. There's a podcast called It Came From The Sea hmm. that I highly recommend. It's a bit more scientific, you know, not not too uh, dry. They do a very good job of presenting it in a way that's fun, interesting. But yeah, it was something I, I never really thought I'd be interested in listening to a podcast about things like that. But uh, but yeah, things like tides that just kind of reminded me of it here. So check yeah. out it came from the sea. That definitely sounds interesting. Seaman Dryden would be buried in Oak Grove Baptist Cemetery near Creeds, Virginia, and that was with three members of another British trawler that had sank after striking a mine. So again, you're seeing that they're kind of keeping all these people together, which is you know I think that's a Cool thing to do out of respect for, you know, all the assistance and help that's going on at this time. Mm -hmm. As you previously stated in 1976, the British cemeteries at Ocracoke and Hatteras are leased in perpetuity to the British government. Mm. Uh, regular maintenance is done by the Coast Guard along with local volunteers. A Royal Navy flag flies over the cemetery and there's actually a uh, ceremony held every May 11th to commemorate what happened. The crewmen whose bodies were not recovered are honored on the Royal Navy Patrol Service Memorial at Lowestoft near Suffolk in the UK. So I thought that was also cool. You know, they still found a way to honor those that, that you know, haven't been found. So their names do appear mm -hmm. somewhere and are recorded. And let's talk a little bit about the wreck itself. The wreck was located in 1980. It's basically off of Ocracoke. It's, I found that there's a couple different reporting locations for this thing. One showed me it was directly out of directly off of Moorhead city. And I don't believe that that's correct. It's definitely mm -hmm. more, it's on the Northern side of Cape lookout and she rests in about a hundred feet of water. Uh, she's protected as a war grave under the protection of military remains act of 1986. And on July 31st, 2015, the vessel was listed in the U.S. government's National Register of Historic Places. It is considered a war grave. You cannot take anything from the site. You can't recover. You know, There's no recovering of artifacts or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But um, it is a very popular dive location because of its proximity to Moorhead and, and all that. You know, it's, it's cool. I think it's cool that people can do stuff like that. I think it makes 
history a little more alive when you could actually go dive on it and see it. That was actually going to be my question about how something's designation as a war grave affects its diveability. So you could just look, don't touch, basically. Basically, yeah. I mean, it would be the same as going to like a battlefield or something. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. you wouldn't be digging up Gettysburg to try to find some musket balls. Although right. I'm sure people do. <laughs> yeah, the same type thing. I mean, I think it's for education and enjoyment at this point. Yeah, you know, it's a really interesting local story. It's another one of these wrecks that I've quote unquote been to, although I haven't, mm-hmm. I don't want to go scuba diving on it because that seems terrifying. Um, I fished it quite a bit, that whole area in general. There's just so many shipwrecks in this one area. Like we said, this is literally a couple miles from the Atlas tanker that we've already mm-hmm. talked about. And there's so many other historical vessels, you know, in the same area. I mean, what most notably of which would be the Queen Anne's Revenge. That's probably, you know, 10 to 15 miles away from where this vessel is. It's just yes. such a rich area for, you know, maritime archaeology and things like that, mm-hmm. that, you know, I think we'll definitely be coming back to the Outer Banks more in the future. It's also an area that me and you happen to be very familiar with. So I think it's great. I think, I, you know, I like finding these kind of stories. It's fun to see, you know, this is a very small story on the grand scale of World War II, but it's great to see, you know, local small communities in in fairly rural North Carolina come together to try to, you know, honor that sacrifice by just regular people from the UK. Yeah, I I think with stories like this, we we've done some some stories in the past where it is a you know small numbers involved or it's a small vessel that's involved, but I think it's very striking to see how that can be a big impactful story even though, you know, if you're looking at this just in terms of numbers on a page, you know, this is a, a quote unquote minor shipwreck, but uh, it's very cool to see those stories and see that there is a story, you know, like this attached to to all of these vessels that sink, whether in wartime or in peacetime. But uh, but yeah, this is definitely a unique story that we've covered. Yep, for sure. Yeah, that's really all I've got for this one. Hopefully everybody enjoys it. Like I said, if you so feel moved, leave us a uh, review or rating on iTunes. We greatly appreciate that. And uh, we'll talk to you again next week with, uh, with another story. Thanks for listening.